This is episode number 727 with Dr. Joy Bulamwini, president of the Algorithmic Justice League. Today's episode is brought to you by Gurobi, the decision intelligence leader, and by Cloudwolf, the cloud skills platform. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. I've got a superstar in my midst today with Dr. Joy Bulamwini. She has so many enormous achievements, I really struggled to pare them down for you for this intro. Well, here's my best shot. So Joy, during her PhD at MIT, her research uncovered extensive racial and gender biases in the AI services of big firms like Amazon, Microsoft, and IBM. The Coded Bias documentary that she stars in and that follows this research has a crazy 100% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Her TED Talk on algorithmic bias has over a million views. She founded the Algorithmic Justice League to create a world with more equitable and accountable technology. She's been recognized in so many different like lists and with so many awards, including the Bloomberg 50, the Tech Review 35 under 35, the Forbes 30 under 30, Time Magazine's AI 100, and she was the youngest person included in Forbes' top 50 women in tech. In addition to her MIT PhD, she also holds a master's from the University of Oxford, where she studied as a Rhodes Scholar, and she holds a bachelor's in computer science from Georgia Tech. So today's episode, that's not obvious already, should be fascinating to just about anyone. In this episode, Joy details the research that led to her uncovering the startling racial and gender biases in widely used commercial AI systems. She talks about how firms reacted to her discoveries, including which big tech companies were receptive and which ones were disparaging. She fills us in on what we can do to ensure our own AI models don't reinforce historical stereotypes. And she fills us in on whether she thinks our AI future will be bleak or brilliant. Finally, Joy's new book, Unmasking AI, was released this very day. To celebrate, I will personally ship 10 physical copies to people who, by Saturday, November 4th, share what they think of today's episode on social media. To be eligible for this giveaway, Please do this by commenting and or resharing the LinkedIn post that I publish about Joy's episode from my personal LinkedIn account today. I will pick the 10 book recipients based on the quality of their comment or post. All right, you ready for this magnificent episode? Let's go. Dr. Bulamwini, awesome to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Where are you calling in from today? I'm calling in from Cambridge, and I have to clarify, it's Cambridge, Massachusetts, because I went to Oxford University, as I think you did as well. So. Yeah, yeah. The well, other Cambridge. I'm still loyal. Yeah, still yeah, loyal. Exactly. Um, I also, I recently, I learned through, because um, I posted online last week that I'd be interviewing you, and I put in as many accolades as I could cram into a single social media post. Um, and I asked people for questions. I mean, so we did get some audience questions, so we'll get into those later. But I also learned through a fellow St. Gallen Symposium alumnus that you are a symposium alumna as well. I am. Which, who was uh, the fellow uh, connector? Uh, Florian Feltus. Yes. 
and oh, you know yeah. they're in the AI space, so we've been in touch yeah. through that connection ever since then. Yeah, I was actually I spoke uh, virtually at his Zortify uh, conference, Zortify PwC conference in Luxembourg last week at the time of recording. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, and so there you go. So that's another. Uh, maybe we can even get you. I'm pressuring you on air now. Maybe we can get you uh, to speak at an event. So I, I'm hosting. The, for the St. Gallen uh, alumni community of U.S. and Canada, I'm like the president of that chapter. Uh, oh, really? So, yeah, we've got our first event coming up in New York uh, in, well, it'll actually be over. It, it's in October. So uh, by the time this episode is out, uh, it will have happened. But uh, yeah, I can keep you in the loop on those things. And uh, so, yeah, so I think the symposium is amazing. Um, Where will it be? Uh, Is that in be, New York? That'll be in New York, yeah. You never know. I'm back and forth in New York quite a bit in October, so we'll nice. see. But we can also we can let you know about you know future. We could set up a future event around you. Uh, Interesting. Cool. Yeah. That would be fun. Uh, it's so a great community. It's an awesome community. I've talked about it on air before. Uh, we have too much to talk about related to you, though, to get into the symposium too much in this episode. Um, so yeah, so our listeners might know you from the 2020 critically acclaimed documentary. It has a hundred percent. On Rotten Tomatoes, it's called Coded Bias. It's a hundred percent rotten. I don't know what that really means. <laughs> no, it's a hundred percent fresh. A hundred percent fresh. That's what it means. Zero percent rotten. Hundred percent um, fresh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so it's about AI bias, and it's about um, uh, your algorithmic justice league, which uh, advocates for equitable and accountable AI. And you also have an upcoming book, which is being, it's being released today. The time we are releasing this episode to coincide with the release of your new book, Unmasking AI. So uh, that means that today is Halloween. It's October 31st, which is the perfect date to release a book about unmasking. Yes. And Joyce just returned from Venice. So she's got some great uh, Venice masks and the classic mask uh, from Coded Bias. I hope if you're watching the, the video version, you're getting all that happening uh, in real time. Um, so, yeah, so your book, uh, Unmasking AI, it's a compelling book. It tells your journey from AI enthusiastic to critic to activistic uh, chronologically in five parts. And so we're going to begin this interview eight years ago when you were a graduate student at MIT's famous Media Lab. Um, so... Before coded bias, there was coded gaze. Uh, how did this term come to be, and how has it affected your perspective regarding AI? Oh, that's such a great question. So when I was a graduate student, oh, so long ago, maybe not that long ago, but when I was a graduate <laughs> student early on at the Media Lab, I took this class called Science Fabrication. And the idea was to read science fiction and create something inspired by the literature as long as you could build it in six weeks. And I wanted to shift my body shape-shifting. Pretty cool concept. We've seen it in many different um, you know, iterations. But I figured I wouldn't be changing the laws of physics anytime soon, so I probably needed to get more creative. So instead of changing my physical form, I thought, what if I could augment my reflection in a mirror? And so in exploring that, I learned about this material called half-silvered glass, and given its material properties, if it's black on the background, it will reflect the light, so it will behave like a mirror. And if there's light, that light will shine through. 
So I used that and created this contraption I called the Aspire Mirror because you could aspire to be what you wanted to be projected. So long story short, I got it working where I could put the face of a lion on my reflection if I wanted, or one of my favorite athletes at the time, Serena Williams. Now that she's retired, still a fave. I'm liking Shikari Richardson out here with the 100 meters, killing it. Also very inspired by Coco Goff, et cetera. Little Steph Curry. As, anyways, you put whoever you want, whoever's your aspiration. So as I'm working on this, I thought, okay, I figured out the first part. Second phase, can I have that mask or that image follow me in the mirror? I thought it would be cooler. So that's what led me to, you know, downloading uh, some computer vision uh, uh, packages offline. And (laughs) what I found was what I incorporated into my code didn't work that well. So the libraries I downloaded were not optimized for my face. And I was curious as a scientist, is it just my face? Is it the reflection? Is it shadows? Is it the angle? Is it the pose? what is actually happening. And so that's what led me to start exploring this question, right, of might there be a coded gaze building on concepts like the male gaze or the white gaze, which reflects those who have the power to shape priorities or to say uh, what's worthy. And so that term coded gaze came from the experience of coding Literally in a white mask, having to fit a norm that didn't quite reflect me in order to be rendered uh, visible. And it builds a little bit. There's a book up here, but there's glasses on top. So I'm going to have to pick it carefully, very carefully, right? (laughs) When that was happening, there's this book called Black Skin, White Mass. It was was too lit. I was like, wait, I couldn't script this better, you know? And I happen to have the white mass because it was around Halloween time. So here we are with the book coming out on Halloween, coming back to that really defining moment for me. Coding in white face at MIT, the epicenter of innovation. Uh Uh-oh, I have questions. What's going on? Is it just my face or is there something more? And so that's that's what ends up leading to what you read about in the book. Yeah. And so it, it led to the discovery or at least the, the, the it entering the public realm that the AI services of big firms like Amazon, Microsoft, IBM, they all had these these issues. Yeah, so after playing around with my Aspire mirror, I then started to learn that beyond, you know, face detection or face tracking, you have facial recognition technologies being used for identification by police departments. Mm -hmm. And then I started noticing that some of these systems also would try to guess your gender, right? Gender classification. And so once I had a sense of different types of facial recognition tasks, I decided to focus on the gender classification systems of the companies that you mentioned. And it wasn't just my face. It turned out what I was observing was actually a broader pattern. And that became the basis for my uh, master's thesis at MIT. Uh, So that's, that's where it started. And so it showed that there was gender bias. Yes, um, the systems overall worked better 
on uh, male-labeled faces than female-labeled faces, but it also showed phenotypic bias. And I say phenotypic bias intentionally because the way that the data set, the pilot parliament's benchmark that was created for this uh, research uh, was labeled was by the Fitzpatrick skin type. Uh, classification. And so I worked with a board certified dermatologist who I had met through the Rhodes Scholar Network. She was from South Africa, but had relocated to the Massachusetts area. We met at the 40th anniversary of Women Rhodes Scholars. I mentioned my work. She said we should be in touch. So I remember uh, visiting her home and she had she has a bunch of kids. They had different skin types, which all looked white to me. <laughs> and, and, so, and so she was pointing out the differences. Uh, and that was actually fascinating because we got into a broader conversation about a bias in health and healthcare and also skin care. So even the Fitzpatrick skin type classification itself in the 70s, when it came out, it had four classifications. Three, I would say three categories of what will likely be perceived as white. And the fourth category was for everyone else in the world. Oh, my God. The whole world, right? So the global majority wasn't reflected. They later expanded it to have three uh, categories, right? Instead of that one category for darker skin. And so you ended up uh, with six. So already it was a limited classification system, but it was also the least racist of the various skin type classification systems that were out there. So this one was coming from derma, uh, you know, dermatology, but you also had others coming more from uh, anthropology. And so sometimes people would associate characteristics with particular skin classes, uh, which still happens. Welcome to racism, which means that phenotypic features and classifications definitely map onto demographics and cultural and social categories for sure. So I'm specific that we labeled it by Fitzpatrick because that was the phenotypic approach, which was a contribution of that research. And that also then maps on to race, but not in a clear cut way as it would be. Because the other thing I looked into was within a particular a racial category, you would have a lot of intra-class variation. So you might have somebody, Tay Diggs, who's really dark skinned and Mariah Carey, um, Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, you know, they both identify as black and they have different um, skin uh, types, different skin tones. So that was the other thing I learned. There was a difference between skin type and skin tone. And you mentioned having a more technical audience here. So yay, can I nerd in a little bit on <laughs> yes, this? Please. Yes. So when it comes to skin color and skin type, skin type is the skin's response to UV radiation. Sunlight, are you going to burn? Are you going to tan? Are you going to do something in between? So just because you have a farmer's tan, doesn't mean you have a different skin type, right? But you do yeah, have sure. different colors. And so that's why I, depending on the audience, I might be really specific to say that we labeled it um, by the skin type and not the skin uh, tone, right? Yeah, Which yeah, can yeah. vary depending on 
where the skin, um, which skin patch you're looking at, it's exposure to elements or hard work, <laughs> you know, all kinds of various things. And also what happens when there's aging and photo aging and all the great things that can impact the skin. I also learned a lot more about skin uh, because along my path, I started working with uh, Olay with Procter & Gamble. And so mm -hmm. they focus on uh, skin care and they have really interesting um, uh, imaging technology where you can even see beneath the surface of the skin. So it, there's just so much fascinating um, elements about skin by itself. And so I started with this art project to look like Serena Williams, maybe now Kari Richardson, Coco Gauff. And next thing I know, I'm learning about skin classification systems in order to do this research. Garobi Optimization recently joined us to discuss how you can drive decision-making, giving you the confidence to harness provably optimal decisions. Trusted by 80% of the world's leading enterprises, Garobi's cutting-edge optimization solver, lightweight APIs, and flexible deployment simplify the data-to-decision journey. Garobi offers a wealth of resources for data scientists, webinars like a recent one on using Garobi in Databricks. They provide hands-on training, notebook examples, and an extensive online course. Visit garobi.com SDS for these resources and exclusive access to a competition illustrating optimization's value with prizes for top performers. That's G-U-R-O-B-I.com slash SDS. Yeah, very cool and uh, interesting to read about the, the skin tone versus skin type thing. So I guess to kind of, uh, to make sure I got that technical term right, my skin type is always the same no matter what, but like I just returned from two weeks where I was uh, mostly, like I was outdoors a lot in a bathing suit. So now my skin tone is different on like my face versus my really <laughs> untanned butt. <laughs> I, I will not comment on the skin variations on your body, uh, but yes, That's your, the idea. your That's skin the type has not changed. Right, right, right. Gotcha. So the appearance of uh, your skin that was exposed to the sun has. So then, um, so it's a kind of this skin type issue of pale males. They, uh, they form a lot of the training data sets for uh, machine vision algorithms. And, you know, we, with your, with your initial research, it was a lot of machine vision stuff, but I think we're, I mean, you, you know a lot more than I do, but it seems like these kinds of these pale male data sets are predominant, not only in machine vision, but in a lot of the training data sets for machine learning. Yes, I will say, especially in the time period we're talking about, right? So when this research um, right. is coming out, I, I submitted my thesis in 2017. The published paper came out early in 2018. There have since been some efforts to diversify different types of data sets. Uh, not all of those efforts I would necessarily uh, condone. Um, I think Google came under fire for bringing in a subcontractor that was soliciting uh, images from homeless people uh, mm. to diversify their data sets. I believe there was a company called Cloudwalk, double check me, fact checkers, please, right? <laughs> that was um, 
that was being integrated in Zimbabwe, um, presumably to diversify uh, their data sets as well. And so I think we are in a situation where the data sets that have been collected that are readily available reflect what I call power shadows. So for example, when we were looking at face data sets, many of those data sets were of public figures. If you look at politicians to be public figures, then you look at who holds political power. Newsflash, man! (laughs) So it wasn't so surprising that if you were using data sets that were reflecting people who held political um, power, that you would have an over-representation of men relative to the global population. So then where is the pale happening, right? Where are we getting these images from? We're getting these images from online, from different media sources. And so then you also ask who is featured in the media, who has more uh, airtime. And since we're talking to a more technical audience, another factor that came into this is because so much of the data scraping that happens is automated, the face detector that's used to determine if an image online has a face in it, those face detectors themselves also had a bias against dark skin. So even if you did have the images with darker skin uh, public figures available, they could have been missed by the face detector. So you have these layers and cascades of bias so that by the time you get to your handy dandy little data set for what you might be doing, right? It's inherited all of these power shadows. So you have the power shadow of the patriarchy, you have the power shadow of white supremacy. And all you thought is you ran a little crawler in a scraper. You weren't even thinking about any of these um, per se. It was more so convenient sampling, which as somebody who, you know, did computer science degrees, etc., cetera, th- this is literally how it was done. There was no yeah. intent to be harmful. Yeah, and so yeah, there's so these power shadows. If we if we naively collect our machine learning training data sets, we'll end up recapitulating these historic power shadows in our modern uh, machine learning models. Um, and yeah, hail and mail. <laughs> and and also make makes them worse. There was a recent Bloomberg. Um, data investigation piece that came out. They said it was inspired by the Gender Shades uh, research. And what they did is they had AI image generators generate people's faces based on prompts. So what does a CEO look like? What does a social worker look like? What does a criminal look like? And they did all of these explorations. And what they found is the systems didn't just replicate the biases in society, they made them worse. So it entrenches the stereotype because you're doing it probabilistically. Mm-hmm. So that's even further <laughs> from where we are because sometimes I do hear, well, society's bias, it's reflecting society. It's amplifying the bias of society. Wow. I actually didn't know that. I, I, it's obvious to me now that you say it. And uh, yeah, I assumed that it was an issue of obviously we have these historical biases and, and I don't even know why someone would make that argument to say, well, it's just, it's just uh, representing these existing historical biases. Like, obviously that's a problem in and of itself. Um, but uh, it makes sense to me uh, 
given what I know about the way that machine learning models train, that it would that in this probabilistic way, it's entrenching and amplifying the biases, not just recapitulating these unwanted biases. It's not, I don't, I think to your point, when you think it out, it makes sense, but it's not immediately obvious. Yeah, it it has never occurred to me. And it's the kind of thing that I'm thinking about literally every day because my machine learning company finds people for jobs. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be certain that it is not favoring some group over another, um, you know, because it's a nurse role, it shouldn't favor female applicants. Because it's a firefighter role, it shouldn't favor male applicants. Mm. For example, even though uh, the his, you know, in historical data, um, those those genders are are overrepresented in those particular uh, in those particular occupations. Um, so uh, over the course of the, this kind of research uh, that you've been doing. You've worked closely with a lot of other researchers like Tim Nagebru. Um, how have these kinds of collaborations and partnerships influenced your journey in shedding light on AI biases? One, it means when I make things like the shield, I tend to make multiple. So this one is for yeah, Tim. Okay. I didn't expect Notice another one. The skin type. And yeah. this one's for me as uh, well. So if you go to uh, gs.ajl.org, gendershades.ajl.org. You'll see us with our respective uh, shields. So other than, you know, excuses to make a uh, swag for my various uh, collaborators, part of it has been having a sense of community, particularly as somebody coming from a marginalized position in computer science. I remember when I was at MIT and I shared I wanted to do this work, people didn't stop me, but it was kind of like, why would you spend, like, go for it, kid, but not necessarily, okay, this sounds like a very promising area of research. I was like, we'll see. And so meeting uh, Tim Neat around that time and her having that computer vision uh, background was a lot of fun for me because one, she helped me refresh uh, my knowledge. So I remember this project she gave me to do, which was basically to create um, like just a quick web app that would make it really easy to go through various data sets, various face data sets. So that was fun, uh, chopping it up uh, technically. But then When it came to, for example, submitting one of my first papers um, in this area, I had done some other work in uh, public health. So different hat, different time, new hat, this area. You know, she's the one who would uh, handle communicating with reviewer number two. Meanwhile, I'm like, why don't they understand the Fitzpatrick (laughs) scale is the point? You're like, all right, all right. I will communicate with diplomacy. So I learned a lot of diplomacy, uh, actually, um, from working with uh, Dr. Gabru for sure. Also, she just, because she was ahead of me, she could give me perspective settings. So I would, you know, I'd be upset about one thing or the other. And she's like, you know, in the broader scheme of things, you're actually in a really good position, right? So I found that to be um, really helpful. Also, senior uh, scholars like Dr. Sophia Noble, and I'm not sure if you've seen the Rolling Stone feature where Timney, uh, Sophia Noble, uh, Dr. Ruman uh, Chandri Sita is there as well. You have to check this out. This is why I got the guitar. 
I needed a reason to, I've always wanted a Les Paul, right? And, you know, degrees and life happen. So mm-hmm. when we had this epic Rolling Stone feature where it says they try to warn us and you have the sisterhood of very highly competent uh, women, we're all doctors, etc. cetera, uh, all together, I thought, what a way to commemorate this. It is Rolling Stone after all. So I went to my local guitar center and I got my nice little uh, Les Paul Gibson with the appetite burst yeah, slash. I'll, I'll be sure to include that in the show notes. Um, and so, yeah, so that's something that if you are one of the viewers that watches our video version, which is a minority of you, um, you have, will have seen that I have a guitar in my background there all the time. And I've even, I played that in some episodes. Um, but so Joy was showing me before the episode started that uh, she had a brand new Les Paul that was looking very cool. And uh, I'll go get it right now. One sec. <laughs> Celebrating back to your point, collaborators. <laughs> yes. No, so, so, so this is why I like having collaborators. This beautiful Les Paul. Um, and then in addition, before we started talking about guitars, we had um, another thing that our, our audio only listeners won't be able to appreciate is that Joy has these AJL, so Algorithmic Justice League shields, and they're color coded to members of the AJL. So she's got, I didn't expect her to have Tim Neitz, Dr. Gebru's uh, on the floor right next to her, but she's got a bunch of AJL shields, including one behind her. Uh, throughout the recording here. Um, And so we should talk about the AJL. So what prompted you to establish it? I guess we kind of got a sense of that already now, because it sounds like this idea of community and having, you know, people who have been ahead of you on some things, maybe people who can respond diplomatically to reviewer number two. Uh, (laughs) What, what other kinds of, what are the primary objectives of the Algorithmic Justice League and why did you establish it? Sure. So it has evolved. At first, I thought it sounded cool. My algorithmic Justice League, I want to be part of that. And I thought it was a way of putting an umbrella over the type of research I was doing uh, at the Media Lab. So with the algorithmic auditing, showing bias in uh, models from uh, tech companies. But AJL is bigger than the research. And it went beyond the research because it focused also on the storytelling So when you see that origin story in the film, Coded Bias, we are focused on how do we elevate the ex-coded, those who are harmed by AI systems? How can we prevent um, the development of harmful AI? And so that's what we focus on uh, at the Algorithmic Justice League, preventing AI harms and increasing accountability in the use of AI systems. Also, I wanted to have a lot of fun, right? And so we do all kinds of playful collaborations. One of my favorites, and you'll see this with the book launch, uh, is with our senior advisor, Dr. Sasha Kostanzachuk, the author of Design Justice, um, and used to be our director of research and design at AJL. And it's also a music producer and uh, musician of many kinds. So they created the Beats for Facial Recognition Blockers, FRBs, under their agent name. We have agent names. Again, we like to have fun. So Agent Splice, <laughs> Splice on SoundCloud. What's your, what's your agent name? I have too many. Uh, so currently I'm Dr. <laughs> Justice. <laughs> nice. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll stick to Dr. Justice for today. And then as people work on various uh, projects with AJL, usually they'll graduate with the AJL agent name. And all full-time folks have uh, agent names. So AJL agents, they know who they are. They're out there. They might be in a company you know. All right. Data science and machine learning jobs increasingly demand cloud skills, with over 30% of job postings listing cloud skills as a requirement today, and that percentage set to continue growing. Thankfully, Kirill and Atlan, who have taught machine learning to millions of students, have now launched CloudWolf to efficiently provide you with the essential cloud computing skills. With CloudWolf, commit just 30 minutes a day for 30 days, and you can obtain your official AWS certification badge. Secure your career's future, Join now at cloudwolf.com slash SDS for a whopping 30% membership discount. Again, that's cloudwolf.com slash SDS to start your cloud journey today. Um, so it sounds like they would be doing a lot of good if they are. Um, so you talked about preventing harms and elevating the X-coded. So far in the episode, we've only talked about machine vision, facial recognition specifically. And that is a prominent example um, and you know it's covered in a lot of detail in the Coded Bias film, for example, which I highly recommend to folks if they haven't checked it out already. It is on Netflix, um, and uh, yeah. So other other than um, that um, facial recognition example, you have found many examples of algorithms that have harmful effects and that the AJL can be tackling. So could you share more about the potential consequences of these kinds of algorithms in fields like employment? finance, law enforcement? Absolutely. When I think of the law enforcement uh, piece of it, I go to, I think of the school to prison pipeline, right? Where you get caught up in the uh, criminal justice system or criminal law system at a very early age. So one thing we've been seeing is the adoption of First, e-proctoring tools during COVID. You're taking the test remotely. We want to see if it's actually you. So this might be looking at people's keystrokes. It could use a machine vision um, as well. But now that you have AI uh, detectors or supposed detectors, uh, some of the harms reports we get are people who have been wrongfully accused of cheating. Right, so their academic integrity is being uh, questioned. And now the onus is on them. Not only did you have to prepare for the stressful final or whatever else it was, and some people setting up contraptions just to have their faces lit uh, to be seen to take the test. Now you have to prove that you actually created what you made. And uh, some of what we've been seeing are that um, students with English as a second language, going back to the bias of many models, English tends to be the language that is, quote unquote, the default or the norm, despite that not being the case all around the world. But it is the lingua franca for the most part of machine learning and AI. And so here you're in a case of, a problem created by AI with then a potential AI quote unquote solution creating to more problems because leading to more problems. And part of that is an issue of confirmation bias. 
So if you're from a marginalized community or community that's already assumed to be engaged in criminal activity or to have lesser character, when you are given the stigma of cheater, et cetera, it's more likely to be believed um, than if you are in a different um, group. So I think that's an area where, again, along that pipeline of criminal justice, it can start with an accusation of cheating. But also you have many companies using the goal of preventing fraud as the motivation for adopting invasive surveillance technologies that are fueled uh, by AI. More on the crime side of things. So you have voice clones, uh, AI voice generators, and a very rich data set of so much. I mean, we got podcast, my voice is out there. Your voice, how many you said episode 727? <laughs> yeah, your episode will be 727. Yeah, your voice is out there. And so now people are able to uh, create AI voice clones that are part of scams. And so uh, in the introduction of the book, I write about one woman who gets a call. She hears her daughter. These bad men have me. How? But she's sobbing. It's a high stress situation. Another voice comes on demanding money. Eventually, she's able to see that her daughter's safe on the trip that she thought her daughter was on. But it's one of those examples that is growing, right? And it's also preying on your vulnerability because it's the voice of your loved one. It can also be preying on your money, right? So the biometrics that were meant to add an added layer of security for, let's say, accessing your finances, it can be compromised uh, with biometrics. And so that's another area uh, to consider. Something else, you know, I have the guitar out. We were talking a little bit about the playfulness and the storytelling pieces of AJL. We definitely are a place that supports and welcomes artists. And so another issue with AI is the process of creation. So if the process of creation entails gathering a uh, data without permission and without compensation, and then profiting profiting from that. We're also in a place, I don't yet have a term. It's not, I want a term for AI that's like blood diamonds. That gives you a sense the way in which it was produced is problematic to say the least. I don't quite have that term, maybe dirty AI. I don't know it um, just yet. And so I was, I, I reflect on this in the book about my own questions when I was taking faces off the internet. I am implicated in these processes. I was doing it in a way that was protected based on the BU Law Clinic review of my research processes for fair use. I wasn't, you know, putting a company on top of it and selling it, et cetera. But nonetheless, I was running into these ethical questions. Is it okay for me to take the faces of these people that are online and some of the laws said yes because they are public figures or some of the laws uh, said yes because we allow the use of government data right for research but something i couldn't quite figure out was when you had to do irbs institutional review boards so you don't end up doing really unethical things based on the past I found that computer vision research got a complete pass. 
So when it came to human subjects research, right, if I'm going to be interviewing people, etc., you have to go through all of these checks to ensure that you're doing the research in an ethical manner. When it came to collecting people's biometric data, which I thought would be classed under medical data, I had a pass because it was computer vision research. The researchers around me, they want their pass too. So by asking these questions, I realized oh, if I really push on this, I'm going to make it harder for myself and for other researchers if you actually have to do a deeper, if you can't get the exemption, right? But I was asking myself, should we be getting this exemption? This is highly sensitive um, data, you know, and you can't anonymize a face. Right. In no, that if I have the photo of your face, it oh, is yeah. not anonymous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are other yeah, steps you can take beyond that, but that's that was the question I had, and every I kind of got that sharp elbow to keep <laughs> keep it moving, you know. So I grapple a lot with um the processes I critique, having also learned those processes and used those processes in my own evolution as a computer scientist and an AI researcher, and then realizing things you did maybe eight, 10 years ago wouldn't necessarily be the way you would do it now with a deeper understanding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are all really good uh, examples of use cases where we have issues. Uh, yeah, certainly the the bias that we see in uh, misidentifying people cheating on tests all the way through to misidentifying them for crimes um, and how these are more likely to impact X-coded people um, as you describe them. Um, yeah, all the way through to the, the profiting from others' art that algorithms can do today. Um, on the X-coding note, um, your TED Talk about the coded gaze made you a leading voice in AI bias discussion, and you would use that platform to raise awareness and propose solutions like the encoding movement. So we've talked about people who have been X, you know, elevating the X-coded. Um, I guess that's like the, I guess that's kind of a synonym. It's just like the kind of the inverse of uh, the encoding movement. Or do you want to elaborate on on the encoding movement and why this pillar could lead to more equitable technology development? Oh, yes. No, that's a great question. So I believe I recorded that talk in the fall of 2016. And so I had more of an engineering hat on. All right, we got pell data. Let's diversify the data set. If people are being excluded, let's include them. But even then, I remember I wrote this um, medium Medium at the time was a up and coming yeah. writer's platform, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So I wrote a Medium article grappling with what are the cost of inclusion and what are the cost of exclusion. So in the TED Talk 2016, I was thinking of an encoding movement. And as my understanding evolved, I realized the answer isn't always to include people. And so when we are seeking justice, it's about agency, it's about rights, the right not to be included. So their cost of exclusion, right? So let's say you're excluded from a data set for a class of people are excluded uh, from a data set of pedestrian tracking. 
algorithms. Yet people are excited about the future of autonomous vehicles. Maybe not everyone. And from uh, our shared academic institution, Oxford University, there's actually, I remember reading this pre-release where they had looked at heights and people who are shorter were more likely um, to be missed and hence not detected, right? Short people like me, children, others, uh, that's a concern. Georgia Tech researchers looked at uh, skin type. They used Fitzpatrick in that case, and they found, oh, look look at that, the darker and more likely to be hit. And, and also when you're thinking about computer vision, you also want to think about ableism. So many of these uh, data sets are created uh, assuming somebody's going to be walking uh, on two feet, which is not always the case. So that, there are all of these factors uh, to consider. Mathematics forms the core of data science and machine learning. And now with my Mathematical Foundations of Machine Learning course, you can get a firm grasp of that math, particularly the essential linear algebra and calculus. You can get all the lectures for free on my YouTube channel, but if you don't mind paying a typically small amount for the Udemy version, you get everything from YouTube plus fully worked solutions to exercises and an official course completion certificate. As countless guests on the show have emphasized, to be the best data scientist you can be, you've got to know the underlying math. So check out the links to my Mathematical Foundations of Machine Learning course in the show notes or at johncrone.com slash Udemy. That's johncrone.com slash U-D-E-M-Y. Yeah, very well said. Uh, yeah, and a great summary of some of the things that we absolutely need to be considering as we develop algorithms. Um, I want to dig more into your research in a moment, but just before we do that, I've got a question for you here about how your particular background might have shaped your perspective on technology. So this is right from chapter one of your book. Um, so you're multicultural, you're born in Canada, uh, although it sounds like you didn't, you didn't send, I was trying to like talk to you about Canada before uh, we started recording where I'm from. Uh, but yeah, it's, you were raised in Mississippi uh, and you have connections to Ghana. You also have an artist mother, a scientist father. Um, so a lot of uh, different perspectives. And how did, how did all of that affect yeah, your own perspective on technology? I think going back to this notion of the cost of inclusion and the cost of exclusion, being from a marginalized identity, so somebody in computer science, right? There weren't a lot of people who looked like me in the classes that I would take, or if I would, any any space I would show up, I just wasn't necessarily the norm. And I got used to that um, so much so that I thought it didn't really matter. And then I remember the film Hidden Figures came out, which talks about the space race and um, the Black women uh, mathematicians who calculated the trajectories for John Glenn and all of these astronauts. Such a good movie. Right? And, And I remember watching it in grad school. I was at MIT. They were doing a screening. So I had an opportunity to meet the author and she did a talk and all of that. 
And I remember watching it and there's a moment where the women come together. They're, they're like marching in. A, it's the squad goals moment, right? Where the East computing women and the West computing, they're all coming together. And I was just so moved by that experience. And it reminded me of the first time I went to the Grace Hopper conference, which is a conference for largest conference for women in tech, I think well over 15,000 uh, participants now from the Anita B. Uh, Foundation. And just being surrounded by so many women, I'd almost forgotten what it was like. I was like, oh, this is kind of, this is kind of nice, <laughs> you know, but it reminded me of what was um, missing. And so I think that sometimes can happen when we're creating tech. We're so used to it being a particular way that cost of exclusion is we don't even know what we're missing. The cost of inclusion is what happens when my data is taken against my will, right? I'm an artist. I have a style that I've spent years of my life perfecting, and now somebody's taking that. That's a cost um, of inclusion. I'm in a surveillance lineup, and I've been misidentified as somebody else. This happened to Portia Woodruff. She was arrested while eight months pregnant sitting in a jail cell because of a false facial recognition match filled and by that, that just AI. happened right like that was that's like, this year reporting that's yeah that's this, the, year. this is this year when they report and i think it's so important because so often i hear well you know that research was from back in the day it's, it's right. not that back in the day and the <laughs> even the new research that comes out on the performance of various facial recognition technologies continue to show disparities that are large uh, relative to one another across different subpopulations, demographic groups, and their intersections. So the so even that is not a full argument. The other part, though, that we see time and time again is the cutting edge of the research isn't what's integrated in the products that are being adopted by older institutions, you know, or more bureaucratic institutions. So it could be the case that Algorithms developed in 2015 are what's powering, what's leading to someone's false arrest in 2023. It could also be the algorithm developed yesterday, right? So I don't want to just make it a dated uh, situation, but I think we can give ourselves a false sense of progress if we don't consider product life cycles and that not everything gets updated. I think about it like a car recall. Yeah, no, there's an issue with the tires, but it doesn't mean all the tires get replaced all at once, which you would think because it's tech, it would be easier to do, but you still have to think about the contracts, right? You have to, it, now you go into the people processes, which I learned a lot more about as I got further into the algorithmic justice league. So what seemed like could maybe be straightforward uh, tech solutions, I quickly learned were socio technical. Uh, problems where you couldn't only think about the technical aspect of it, which is personally where I like to be. I got into computer science, so I wouldn't have to deal with messy humans. Here we are. Here we are. <laughs> Clearly, it didn't work out. <laughs> but I, I could, I could, like, ooh, nice math. People are out of it, but that's not how it works. Even you know, you can lie with statistics, as we all know. So it's not as neutral and objective as I would have hoped for it to be, meaning we still have to do that hard work of yeah. self-development and reflection 
as well as societal development and reflection. Yeah, I recently did an episode number 703 with Professor Chris Wiggins of Columbia University. He's also the chief data scientist at the New York Times, and he did an episode on the history of data science. And he it's his position that everyone in this field should also have some social sciences education because of how the algorithms that we deploy all have an impact on the real world, on society, that we can't keep these things apart. Uh, on the note of your research, so we've already talked about how in your master's and doctoral theses from MIT, they, they involved concepts of the coded gaze, gender shades, we've talked about those. Um, and, uh, oh, have we talked about gender shades? Actually, we haven't done that yet, have we? We talked about shades. We t I, a little bit in so much as you mentioned that the research showed bias in products from IBM, Amazon, Microsoft, et cetera. Yeah, so that maybe let's dig into that a bit more. So there's things like the Pilot Parliament's benchmark, the PBB, um, and you know it's it's your position that it's essential for AI developers to take an intersectional approach to analyzing data. So yeah, do you want to fill us in on? Yeah, I've just like opened a bunch of can of worms, a bunch of cans of worms here, but gender shades, uh, Pilot Parliament's benchmark, and yeah, intersectional approaches to analyzing data. I'm sure it yes. is. Yes. So I'd love to hear about it. Absolutely. So the reason I even came to intersectionality was because I started reading outside of computer science and realized that there was a lot to learn. And so in graduate school, I was introduced to uh, research on anti-discrimination law from Kimberly Crenshaw. And what I found with her research is she found the limits of single axes analysis when it came to looking at discrimination through U.S. law. So, for example, if you have a law that says you can't discriminate on the basis of race or you have a law that says you can't discriminate on the basis of gender, she was finding that people at the intersection of gender and race on a particular issue were running into problems. So, for example... Let's say you're at a company and the company hires black men, right? And you're a black woman. So if you say I'm being discriminated against, they will say we hire black people and the data would show they hire black people, but it's not accounting um, for the racial aspect of it, right? Uh, same for uh, Asian women, right? They can be different intersections. And so as I was looking at um, this research she did when it came to anti-discrimination law, I thought, huh, what would happen if we looked at the intersections, if we weren't just doing single axis analysis? So if I looked at demographics, so gender and phenotype, skin type in this case, would there be a difference? Would the story vary with a sharper lens? And I didn't know the answer. That was part of the research. And after we ran, you know, all the studies, et cetera, did our fun experiments, we found that, oh my goodness, if we look by gender and we look by race alone, yes, there are disparities, right? So I think it was probably 12 to 18%, depending, right? When we looked at the intersection, we would see a uh, case, for example, where the gap could be as large as around 34% difference if you compare, yeah. let's say, yeah. lighter yeah. males and darker females um, with one of the 
uh, companies. And that was, we didn't do all of the intersections. We didn't look at age, et cetera. We didn't do, you know, all of the world. The Pilot Parliament's benchmark is a data set I created because when I looked at existing data sets, they were largely pale male or the ones that were more gender balanced because they were meant to assess uh, gender classification still didn't contain that many dark skinned people. So I was surprised to find that by pure numbers alone, my smaller data set actually represented more darker skinned individuals than some of the larger data sets um, that were out there. And so the pilot parliaments benchmark became necessary because I realized the tests we were using to see how well systems performed didn't reflect society. So we were getting a false sense of progress. And this false sense of progress is being used to justify the adoption of various facial recognition uh, technologies. And so I realized, oh, wow, we have to, <laughs> as I started, you know, I go from Conan the White Mask doing this class project and you start peeling the layers. So this layer made me not just think about facial recognition technologies, but any machine learning approach. How are we evaluating it? The way we're evaluating it, if it doesn't include an intersectional lens, means we're not seeing the complete picture. And so this aggregate level view, which, you know, if you're wanting to compare various algorithms, you want to know how it did overall. Okay, let's say 95% of your benchmark is lighter skinned individuals. You could fail on all darker skinned folks and still get a passing grade. So it was something akin to that we were seeing um, it with the research I was doing with the Gender Shades project. What happens when the test represents more of the real world? Let's see. And that was what we did. Um, so that's what was my MIT master's thesis. Let's make a test that's more intersectional and see how these companies perform. On yeah. the In that case, binary classification task uh, of gender, not because gender is a binary, but because these were the categories that were being used. And so I was really concerned that on a, on a test where you had a 50-50 shot of getting it right, Mm -hmm. We were mm -hmm. seeing these types of disparities. So I, my informed assumption was that if you were moving to something like facial identification, one to many matching, you were going to likely see even worse numbers. And that's what happened on what we saw when the National Institute for Standards and Technology, taking inspiration from my master's thesis, which was jarring for me. I was like, wait, they're reading the, read the published paper, cite that one, right? You know, a little more rigor, but regardless, um, to do a more comprehensive test where they have, you know, 17 million photos, as opposed to the 1,270 images I collected. Um, but I do think something else I take from conducting the gender shades research is so often scale is seen as a necessary uh, part of making impact. And I point out the fact that the pilot parliament's benchmark was small enough to be collected by a grad student with little to no uh, resources, right? Small enough where I could hand label all of it. 
And so could Deb. So when um, Deborah Raji, great scholar, uh, wanted to intern with me at the Media Lab and most other people on the tech side, one of the things you have to do is hand label, right, all of the data sets, because then you also, you become the arbiter of truth and you see how precarious, how shaky your ground truth is. Right. So I remember when companies would, you know, they would have their internal teams replicating gender shades and I'd get a call or a message about specific faces that they're like, so how did you label this one? But I thought those those cases were particularly interesting because they reveal the most about our assumptions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, for example, with skin type, in some places, people bleach their skin. And so then there's a question of, okay, the skin color is this way, but what is the skin type? The other thing I noticed is um, uh, people from South Asia or South Asian background, it was almost like people, people would use other metadata to determine the skin type. So it wasn't just what they saw on the skin. Right. It's like, oh, is it from an African nation? Mm -hmm. Is it from a different, and also just because you're in an African nation, for example, we did South Africa. You know a little something about colonialism. There's an overrepresentation of lighter skinned individuals in the South African uh, parliament. And it was also from a research perspective, an interesting way to uh, answer the question, okay, are these differences an artifact of just the photo sets themselves? So it was nice to have that set of photos for that reason um, as well. But we we saw those disparities there. And within that, you could see the skin type range was more diverse within an African country. So then when I would look at uh, data sets or analyses coming from an uh, organization like the National Institute for Standards and Technology, what you would see are experiments where they would say this algorithm performed in this way on this population, and it would be at a nation level population, which depending on the nation, yeah, I don't know. So you're t let's say Brazil, so much diversity, but now you have to think about just like when I was telling you about the face detectors failing on darker skin and that already having to deal with the various power shadows. So now when you think about these data sets, we're doing visa images. Who in the country is going to have the resources to be able to apply and obtain a visa image in the first place? So then I was realizing the proxies we were using aren't actually going to necessarily give us a sense of a heterogeneous uh, population in the first place. So the whole intersectional piece really came from observing what was wrong, because as a graduate student, I'm reading about all these breakthroughs, yet here I am coding a white mask, so something's off. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. following that line of questioning, um, I will say, Again, I wasn't completely discouraged from doing the research outright. There, you know, maybe a few people are like, how much you know about math? Are you sure you want to get into AI? I'm like, really? Really? <laughs> but that, that didn't deter me. Um, 
and it was helpful again to have um, mentors and friend like uh, Dr. Tamit uh, Gebru. But the point I'm trying to make is sometimes you can see an issue that feels apparent or you have an intuition, you still need to get the data. You can't just say, I assume this and now it's my opinion is fact. <laughs> you know, you have to go be a scientist, have a hypothesis, test it out, do that whole uh, process uh, and see. But don't be discouraged if not everybody around you sees it at first. Nice. A great message there. And yeah, so the this gender shades concept uh, to kind of, to summarize it is that when we have a statistical model or a machine learning model, it's kind of like statistics 101, where you learn that you can have like a main effect or an interaction term. And so if the, in this case, this binary classifier, you're predicting, uh, gender is just like, it's, it's an, it's, it's an, it's a task that you happen to have. There were a bunch of different APIs that existed at that time for big tech, big tech companies that did this task. So if that is the outcome, gender is the outcome that you're predicting, you have going into the model with each face, there is a label of whether of what the gender is, there's a label of um, the shade, the skin tone, and- Skin type, skin type. Skin type, ah, skin type, damn, ah, my own notes. Yes, the skin type, of course. Um, and so, yeah, so you have, these two features going into the model. And if you looked at skin type alone or gender alone, yeah, you noticed issues. And so for example, uh, one of the stats that I remember from that same, that 34% stat you were giving on error rates, uh, I, I, I don't know why I'm visualizing this so easily, but I remember that for pale males, for pale males, it was 100% accurate on predicting gender. But with black males, it was 99% accurate. But you're like, okay, you know, that's worse. That's not, you know, it, it doesn't seem that bad. But when you look at uh, dark-skinned women, it was that that was the 34% wrong. It was that was the 77% stat. Also, that's or, still an aggregate. So if you really get into the research paper and you look at the um, supplement material. In the paper, we aggregated skin type one, two, and three as lighter and skin type four, five, and six as darker. Mm -hmm. When we mm -hmm. broke it all the way down, if you went to skin type six for women, you had air rates um, more around the 47%, wow. closer wow. to a coin. a coin flip. Right. You know, so. It, and then the other thing, just method on the methodology piece, the way I calculated it was you didn't get points off on the faces you didn't detect. So some of the reasons why you saw that darker male performance was better in some instances was because I wasn't, again, I was, I was kind of the nice teacher. <laughs> I didn't, you know, like, I'll aggregate. I'm not going to count you off for the faces you didn't detect um, the way that I did it in my master's thesis. So the methodology for the master's thesis is slightly different from the gender shades uh, published one, right? In terms of what you get points for and what you don't get uh, points for. So if you like, if you're really looking into the numbers and you want to see it, you can check out gs.ajl.org, and we have this cool visualization. So you can filter it by the predicted gender, by the skin type, etc. I'm not sure if you see this website, gs.ajl. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, 
you've shared it with me and I'll be sure to include it in the show notes as yeah. well for all of our listeners. So if people want to play around with it and see how it breaks down, et cetera, what people predicted, and by people I mean APIs <laughs> from different companies, um, you can see that and you can see their country, you can see their skin type, you can see the gender, et cetera, and all of that. Uh, good jazz for yourself. Uh, we decided not to release the photos of the actual parliament members, especially with the passage of GDPR. And so at the time we were collecting the data set, GDPR wasn't in effect. But when we decided we would want to make this data available, we decided to release the metadata and not the original um, faces of the people. Uh, in the data set, given where we are in our understanding and also where the laws are uh, at this point. Yeah, yeah. So to make that crystal clear for our listeners, uh, this pilot parliament's benchmark, PBB, that you created um, to allow people to, you know, or at least yourself, I guess, after not having released it publicly. Uh, or researchers to, did or reach researchers out for it. And, and yeah. Uh, so it so that PPB allows folks to take this intersectional approach to analyzing data, um, and uh, the name of that comes from I'm I'm piecing this together now. But the the Parliament's part is that you're using you were hand labeling photos of people from parliaments all over the world, uh, government uh, people who've been elected to government, and then it's pilot because it's a relatively small. 1,270. This should not be your gold standard benchmark by any stretch of the imagination. The reason I was looking at parliaments was I wanted to find a data set um, where I could get better gender balance. And so I went to the website of the United UN Women, United Nations Women's Portal, and they had a list of countries by their representation of women in parliaments in those countries. And so in the top 10, you had three African nations, you had um, South Africa, you had Senegal, and you had Rwanda. And then you had in the top 10, also you had uh, Nordic nations, so Iceland, uh, Sweden, Finland. There were other, there were Caribbean nations and so forth. And the reason I decided to focus on the Nordic way up from the equator <laughs> and the African ones was to have a better distribution of opposite ends of the skin type. So remember I told you about Fitzpatrick where once upon a time it was just category four. <laughs> Mm -hmm. rest of the world, global majority, and then that got expanded. I found it was really difficult to get labeling consistency for type four, which would be more so what was represented in more of the Latin American uh, countries that also made it into the top four in the Caribbean nations uh, for the representation of women in parliament. At that time, I was looking at the data. So the reason we end up with parliaments was I was trying to find a place where I could have more of that gender balance. I looked at the U.S. We weren't even, we were so far from the top 10. <laughs> it wasn't even uh, going to be um, included uh, at all. But as I was doing parliaments, I looked at a lot of parliaments from all over the place, Singapore, 
looking at India, so many different parts of the world. And it just underscored to me how much power men hold. Right. You definitely saw that gender imbalance um, time and time again. So that's part of how Parliament's uh, that came about. As an athlete, you know, I used to be uh, also back back to Oxford days. I used to be with the Oxford Blues pole vaulting oh, yeah. of all things. Yeah, of oh, all things. AC. So something you might not have known, or it's probably out on the internet, a little pole vaulting. Yeah, that, that actually is news to me. I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah, so some pole vaulting aspirations. Uh, didn't make it to the Olympics. So I went to grad school. Here we are. <laughs> you know? Uh, well, certainly, I mean, in almost all likelihood, making a bigger uh, impact on this trajectory uh, globally. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and speaking of impact, uh, how did companies like IBM respond to findings, to the, to the findings of, you know, their APIs, say their gender classification API, working so poorly on particularly women with a darker colored skin? Uh, yeah, so I see the response to the Gender Shades research as a tale of three companies. Let's start <laughs> with IBM. IBM, when I sent the information, and when I sent the information to all of the companies, I didn't tell them who their competitors were. Just that, you know, there were companies they likely had heard of. So it was what I now call a coordinated bias disclosure, which builds on coordinated vulnerability disclosure disclosure from uh, InfoSec. And so if you find a vulnerability, instead of making it public to everybody at once, you let the companies know ahead of time, you give them an opportunity to address it. And then when you announce it, if changes have been made, you can also announce those changes. So we did that with all of the companies, but IBM was really the only one that took us up on uh, that uh, offer. So I remember, I think shortly after my 28th birthday, yeah, going to one of the IBM offices in New York, and then they had one in Boston. So I was literally running their updated algorithm uh, their model, really, on the pilot parliament's uh, benchmark in my Lego clad um, <laughs> office at MIT. I'm just laughing because they were very much dressed in a IBM way. And then you have grad students all around. But it's not just any grad students. It's grad students at the media lab <laughs> of all places. So I still remember uh, that. So I would say IBM engaged. They said, OK, uh, we receive your research. Um, talk to our teams. Uh, they were, I believe, already working on a new model. And so it, it timed out. It, the timing came to where I could say, hey, there's a different model. And they closed the disparity um, substantially between the first test and the second test. Change is possible for all the people who are telling me, well, the laws of physics, there are limitations, etc. I was like, there are physical limitations. That was not the problem here. It was more of a question of priority. I will say, though, after that happened, I then read an Intercept article about IBM having worked with the New York Police Department to provide uh, computer vision tools that allowed them to search for people by their skin color and uh, facial hair, things like that. So essentially tools for racial profiling. So this was the thing where I'm thinking, oh, cost of inclusion, 
right? Because you don't necessarily want to be powering a surveillance uh, state. And so there was that aspect of it. I do have to commend IBM in 2020. Uh, they were the first company to say we are no longer going to sell facial recognition uh, to law enforcement. Uh, Microsoft followed saying we won't sell it to law enforcement until there are laws. Amazon, so I will say, so that was the tale of uh, IBM. I would say engaged and proactive. Uh, Microsoft. Microsoft, I gave them the same uh, opportunity I gave IBM. They slept on it until there was a New York Times uh, feature article. And then we started to hear from Microsoft, right? So Microsoft also um, took more of the technical route in terms of saying, okay, here we've updated our models, et cetera. I remember when Microsoft released um, an update saying that they had changed their models, et cetera. It was the week I was on, I think, Tech Review 35 Under 35. So I uploaded my Tech Review 35 Under 35. I have a YouTube of this. It's probably offline, but I like to timestamp these things in case I'm ever questioning. Like, okay, you're right. You're right. Here it is. Okay. So I upload my 35 Under 35. Um, misgendered. My age is all all kinds of off. And it's the day that they released that announcement. And so that's when I started thinking about this car recall analogy. Just because you've announced there's an improvement doesn't mean it's been integrated into the products. Or even if there is an improvement doesn't mean it works for all people. So I will say Microsoft did respond um, more with the research lens and then with the public pressure in 2020 also uh, backed away. So those are two companies. Responsive. Then there's Amazon. I think Amazon's an example of what not to do. Amazon, we didn't even test Amazon the first time. Uh, Deb Raji decided she wanted to do an internship with me, etc. We figured something out. And so for that internship, we decided to do the gender shade study again, but include two more companies. So included uh, Clarify and uh, Amazon. I assume given that basically the test answers were available and had been available for over a year, these companies would crush it. So I was, I really was just expecting it to be a pretty much a blowout. Um, this is not a particularly challenging data set. Easy grader, nice teacher, right? And so I was surprised to see Amazon was where the, the worst companies were a year prior, even after all of this attention, media, et cetera, you know? So one, we didn't show anything that was unique to Amazon. We said, like their peers, they also have up gender bias, up skin type bias. And yes, that intersectional bias also there, right? We showed all of that. It was, it was the same story, more or less, just with a different company that given their resources and given that they were selling facial recognition to law enforcement, and there had been petitions um, to them to stop, I would have thought there would have been a bit more consideration. So Amazon's initial approach was actually to attempt to discredit um, the research. And I remember I was speaking, this is all in the book, like you can, we could go way deep into it. So it's that chapter, uh, Poet versus 
uh, Goliath. So you can get all the nitty gritty in there. A uh, long story short, they attempted to discredit the research that ended up not working. And they took the long way around, but eventually also came to that we will uh, not sell facial recognition to law enforcement until further notice. These company commitments are, I think, a step in the right direction, but we can't rely on self-regulation or voluntary commitments for uh, safeguarding uh, the rest of us from AI harms. So I would say the the response was mixed, but I will also say the response from other companies and also other entrepreneurs was this development of an AI auditing ecosystem. So you have many more uh, companies that offer services to say, if you want to build trustworthy AI or responsible AI or beneficial AI, it keeps changing, right? But not bad AI, fill in your not bad <laughs> version. Um, we can help you uh, test the systems, test your processes, et cetera. Yeah, so what's your take on the future? Are we, like, do you have a, um, do you have a, yeah, what's your perspective on like what the future of AI will be like? Will, will, will algorithms be increasingly ethical? Are we gonna figure these issues out? Are people doing the right things out there? I think we're going to have a diverse future. And so depending on where in the world you live, there will be different AI regimes and different uh, models and structures for AI governance. We've seen a risk-based governance approach emerging in the EU, as we see with the EU AI Act. And I was really um, gladdened to see the that the use of facial recognition uh, in public spaces, the live use was put on the uh, restricted uh, use category. So there's still more to do for sure. And you have places in the US where there's an exploration of a rights-based approach as we see with the blueprint for an AI uh, bill of rights. You also have um, scale-based approaches, right? So if you have over a million users, et cetera, the requirements for you are not necessarily going to be the same as the startup just trying uh, to make it. So I think what we're going to have in the future, just like we have different governments around the world, are different structures uh, for AI governance. Yeah, that's a good answer. Yeah, I hope that with uh, episodes like this, we get our listeners thinking about the uh, yeah the problems that are inherent in most data sets. And because almost all of our algorithms, uh, you know, we want them to be deployed into the real world. They're going to have a real world impact. And yeah, you need to be thinking about how that impact is going to affect different groups, not just, I mean, you've got to do these main effect analyses. You've got to do the intersection analyses. You can't just be relying on the accuracy stat on the whole data set. Um, if you don't have a well-balanced data set. Right. And there's also that quest, can you make the well-balanced data set? And we've explored it in various ways. Um, and at the end of the day, whoever is constructing the data set is bringing their own perspectives, their own biases, right? And so mm -hmm. I do believe bias mitigation starts with awareness. I don't think you will eliminate bias because to do that, you would have to eliminate people. And you would have to eliminate values. It's being aware of what those biases are, correcting for the unwanted 
um, biases as well. And ultimately focusing on harms, because let's say you did create more accurate systems than are then used in abusive ways. It's not just a question about how accurate are the tools I'm creating, but how are these tools being used in the first place? Nice. So thank you for answering all of my questions, Joy. I really appreciate it. It's been such an amazing episode already, but we also have some audience questions for you. So as I alluded to at the beginning of the episode, I mentioned on social media that you would be an upcoming guest on the program. And so we had uh, Florian Feltes point out that you're a St. Gallen Symposium alumna. Um, but we had some questions as well. So Christina Stathopoulos, who was a guest herself actually on this show in episode number 603. And she became a friend of mine. We recorded in person. So it's one of those nice things where you get to like really meet someone. Um, and so, yeah, Christina is a huge fan. She's been following your work for years and she's beyond jealous that I get to chat with you. Um, so she says, I already know this is going to be my favorite episode of super data science ever. Um, no pressure. Yeah. The question for you was, I think we might've addressed this to a large extent in the episode, but you might have some tips by me giving you this question again. I suspect you'll have some great guidance for listeners that hasn't already come up. So her question is, how do we improve fairness in algorithms and AI? What are your tips and tricks for a more inclusive future with technology? Uh, this is a great question. And it comes down to being aware of how we're defining what fairness means. Is it statistical parity? If we're looking from a lens of equity, giving everybody the exact same thing might not necessarily address historical or cultural uh, realities. I remember when I was working on my PhD uh, dissertation, this notion of what is fairness and who gets to define it came up quite a bit. And what might be fair in one context or in one country might change in another. And so I think it's really important to articulate the assumptions behind any processes or approaches to fairness. So are we assuming, right, it's the same kind of people with the same sorts of opportunities and everything has been a level playing field? Or are we in a different kind of context? So being aware about the assumptions of fairness and what's animating those and whether or not those assumptions hold in the real world because oftentimes you can do the toy problems, which are helpful uh, for intellectually exploring an idea, but sometimes that can go to such a clinical place, it doesn't actually make sense in the context of people's lived lives. And so I think when it comes to fairness, it's really important that you talk to the people who might be impacted by the AI systems um, or ML systems you're creating to have a better sense. I think another way of coming at this, a lot of my work is around uh, algorithmic uh, auditing, but also thinking about a full life cycle of an AI system from design, development, deployment, oversight, and a place that is oftentimes not even considered in this conversation around fairness, redress. So what's the fair way to respond to an algorithmic harm? 
because maybe you didn't quite get fairness right in the design development deployment of the system. And so I think that's also, there have been notions of things like algorithmic reparations. I'm not sure exactly what that would look like, but in that conversation of reparations and repair, it is saying we have to address larger systemic uh, issues that go beyond what's happening in a particular uh, snapshot. Part of what we're doing with the Algorithmic Justice League with the Xcoded Experience platform is collecting stories and experiences from people. So there is an evidentiary record. So where laws do exist or where litigators are hungry, right, for the class action uh, lawsuits, there are pathways for redress. And I seldom hear the conversation of redress um, included in conversations about uh, fairness uh, in AI, but I think it's a crucial piece. Yeah, in my years hosting this show, we've had a number of episodes uh, on ethics and responsible AI, and this is my first time hearing it as well. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a great tidbit there on redress. And yeah, I think a really great point there as well was just your point about talking to the people that will be affected by these algorithms, really understanding what they're like and considering the whole life cycle of the algorithm development. Um, our second question here comes from Carrie Benjamin. So Carrie's a data science associate and asks, after all these years, with all the challenges that you've come across, what are the things that have kept you going? I the youth. I'm also youthful myself, right? I remember getting a video from a seven-year-old at the time named Aurora. Her mom reached out to the Algorithmic Justice League and she shared that for school project they had to pick a historic figure. I'm like, look, I'm my 30s. I don't I don't view myself as historic, but okay, I'll I'll keep reading. And so for the class, they created a living uh, wax museum. So she got her red blazer, she got her white glasses, and her mom sent the video, right? So she goes, I'm Dr. Joy Blumweenie, and I have a bunch of degrees, which just said <laughs> my parents laughing, right? And then she had watched Coded Bias a number of times. She knew all of these. She had done her research. I mean, I think maybe super data science is the closest to matching the level of research she had done <laughs> on me and the uh, algorithmic uh, Justice League, and also just um, working with organizations like Justice, led by uh, high schoolers, and the energy, the eagerness, the readiness to build a better society for themselves and for us, that always renews my energy when I'm feeling a little bit depleted. Um, not so long ago, I had the opportunity to go to Venice for the DVF Awards, Diane uh, von Furstenberg, uh, the fashionista, the inventor of the wrap dress. And, you know, in her 70s, she's using her time and resources to uplift women uh, leaders in a very powerful way. And so to be honored alongside the Deputy Secretary General of the United States, uh, Mina J. Muhammad, um, Amal Clooney, and all of the powerful work she's done as a human rights activist, a storyteller, a comedian, uh, Lily Singh, uh, uh, Helena, who's a youth activist where they've been working in Ecuador to actually uh, have the government stop the deforestation 
of the Amazon just leave, leaves me incredibly inspired to know that there are fellow sister warriors out there, sibling warriors, any gender, all genders, uh, welcome, really uh, pushing to make change in many different um, areas. And so being in community, uh, taking the time to celebrate the accomplishments, even though there's so much more to be done, it was a good uh, reminder, um, the DVF Awards. And at AJL, we have something called the Gender Shades Award, which we give to an ex-coded person because oftentimes researchers like myself are uh, celebrated or you'll have filmmakers like Shawnee, who was the director for Coded Bias, you know, Emmy nominated uh, film. But we wanted to celebrate the people who are being harmed uh, by AI and are nonetheless using their voices, using their platform to speak out. And so the first Gender Shades Justice Award went to Robert Williams, who was falsely arrested in front of his wife and two young daughters held in prison. And he has been speaking up about it. And so, you know, just like the DVF Awards, it came with an award and some money as well uh, to help that can be used as they uh, see uh, fit. But those types of experiences and the people on the front lines like Robert Williams, like Portia Woodruff, the students who are inspired like Aurora, they definitely uh, keep me motivated. Nice. Those were all great anecdotes. And for people watching the YouTube version, they can see the DVF award right over Joy's right shoulder uh, on the shelf behind her. Um, and so last question here from Dr. John Boz. Andy Bosma, <laughs> uh, who is at the IBM Academy of Technology Leadership. Uh, he's a senior IT architect there. Um, he says, it's a bit of a long question here, but it's uh, around the idea of um, what are your thoughts, Joy, on turning nascent movements in AI toward the goal of ending systemic racism um, with specific reference to whether or how AI might be turned to the goal of closing racial, ethnic, and gender uh, wealth gaps globally. So yeah, we got a taste of it there with your last response. Some awards, <laughs> individual awards. Uh, but yeah, um, yeah, this is obviously a broader question. Right. When it comes to systemic change, which is ultimately you know the goal, I would think of most social movements if it's. Um, women's rights or uh, human rights, or if you're thinking about algorithmic justice. I, as somebody who started out, I'm a techie techie person, right? Ultimate nerd, wanted to go to nerd school. You know, this was, let's go learn about computer science. Let's learn the math. Let's build fun technology that could change the world, save the world, have some fun along the way. My initial responses to systemic issues or other problems was to use the tools I was familiar with, right? To use tech tools. I remember when, after the Gender Shades paper came out, I thought, oh, maybe we could set up a site that allows people to label data in a crowdsourced way, blah, 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 where I'm thinking of all of these technical uh, solutions. As I got more understanding of the socio-technical nature of problems, I moved away from using the technical hammer as the first hammer 
And so I write about this in the intro for Unmasking AI. I don't think we're going to solve climate change with AI because AI doesn't change the economic reality that allows certain companies to continue to do what we already know to be harmful, right? It's not necessarily about having more information. Does that mean we can't we can't use AI to optimize systems? No, right? Does it mean we can't change flight patterns and make things more fuel efficient? We can do all of those things, but we still have to get to the people aspect, which AI on its own um, will not do, right? Similarly with AI, when it comes to any type of inequality, so long as we live in societies that implicitly or explicitly say one life is more worthy than another, one type of person because of their race, because of their gender, right? Because of their ability is more worthy and saying it through what the economic opportunities are, saying it through what the educational opportunities are, AI alone will not undo that in society. What I learned from being a member of the Center uh, for uh, Civic Technology at MIT, rest in peace, it is no longer um, there at the MIT Media Lab, was we can use technology to convene and to have conversations that need to be had that otherwise might be ignored if not for whatever shiny new tool uh, is out there. So in so much as we can use the interest in the adoption of AI, the concerns of algorithmic harm and algorithmic bias to have the conversations and to also push for the legislation, which helps to push the systems, but then also to push for the cultural change that is necessary to address systemic Um, racism, that's the way in which we can use AI to be a convener, right? We can use AI in some ways to amplify or highlight issues we might have otherwise missed. But thinking it is only an information problem, I think, reduces the complexity of systemic issues. And so I think AI can be part of that convening, uh, technology, but I do think ultimately we have to work on ourselves and on society. All the things I try to avoid when I started computer science, and here we are. Great answer. I love that one, Joy. Uh, so yes, thank you so much for this amazing episode. Your uh, positivity and humor are such a joy. You know, I think. My guests are always in good moods, but like you're amazing. Like you just, yeah, you are a joy for sure. Um, so before I let you go, I ask all of my guests for a book recommendation. Do you have one for us? I have a stack of books. I'm so glad you asked. All right. So my book, as you know, is coming out pretty soon but it is out today in terms of when the podcast is and by soon i mean now by soon (laughs) i mean now okay or i will mean now we're living in the future i like this okay so if you want to go back historic i recommend black skin white mass france fanon if you know a little bit about me you know i'm a poet and you also know i'm also named joy I had to do the Poet Laureate of the United States of America. 
So we got Poet Warrior, Joy Harja. Definitely check that out. We also have, check it, Viral Justice, Dr. Ruha Benjamin, who just keeps writing books. So she has another one coming out, Imagination, a Manifesto. So I would check out her work. My good friend, Kathy O'Neill, who also blurbed um, this book right here. So I'm literally building on the work of Kathy O'Neill with Weapons of Math Destruction. And I remember reading it at the Harvard Bookstore when she came to do her uh, author talk. And I was mentioning some of the ideas I had. So that was very encouraging and affirming uh, experience for me. And building on more scholars, Algorithms of Oppression, classic by Dr. Sophia uh, Noble. And so, so much of my um, work around an intersectional lens when it comes to how we take a critical look at algorithmic systems builds on top of her research as it also builds on top of the research of Dr. Latanya Sweeney. And then there is automating inequality. So you asked for one book recommendation. And if I could only recommend one, it's yeah. unmasking AI. <laughs> and so, yeah, so for our audio only listeners, when she was talking, when Joy was talking about, uh, so Kathy O'Neill, she mentioned uh, how Kathy O'Neill had also provided um, a, uh, had provided praise for the cover of Unmasking AI. That's the book that Joy was referring to in the video. And yeah, it was cool to see that book, Weapons of Math, Destru- Weapons of Math Destruction. Uh, you're walk- they have lots of footage of you walking around with it in Cambridge, Massachusetts, <laughs> in the Code Advice film. Um, nice, Joy. Thank you so much. So super inspiring episode, super inspiring person. How can people follow you best after this episode? Uh, yes. So if you want to figure out all the things in one place, I would recommend poetofcode.com because we need more POCs in tech. <laughs> Anyways, poetofcode.com. So I'm at poetofcode on Instagram, on X, Twitter, X, might the <laughs> you know, for Halloween, since it is Halloween, last Halloween, I dressed up as the ghost of Twitter past. <laughs> And then I was, what was joking. That costume like? I don't know if it's a. I don't know what I can show here. It was. <laughs> it was for a a fun event, but much of it off camera. Um, <laughs> but I. It had a digital mask, and on the digital mask, you could put whatever you wanted. So it had the logo of Twitter, and then isolates. So I kept with the mask theme, and then it was a hot red dress, and then some uh, very nice boots. It was a. It was a good costume. So there is that. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Joy. It has been a joy. And uh, yeah, maybe we will have the pleasure of your company someday in the future on the show again. I would certainly love that. And I'm sure we should have a jam session. What kind of music (laughs) do you like to play? Um, I love 60s rock and 90s rock uh, the most. That's kind of what I play. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? I like stuff like System of a Down. Oh, yeah. I was working out to some system this morning. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, so all good yeah. jazz. System, very, uh, they're big on justice and changing the world. 
great poetry as well. Absolutely, for sure. Nice. All right, Joy, uh, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you again soon. Sounds good. Joy is unreal. What an amazing conversation that was. I hope you enjoyed it too. In today's episode, Joy filled us in on how pale male data sets, in part thanks to her own research and advocacy, are not as prevalent today as they were five years ago, but pale males are still overrepresented in ML training data today, nevertheless. She also talked about how beyond facial recognition issues, AI models reinforce historical stereotypes against children in classrooms, are used to scam people, and to profit from human artists' labor. She talked about how critical it is that we analyze our models not only for main effects against particular demographic groups, but also for interaction terms as, for example, black women are often handled considerably less well by AI models relative to black people or women. And she talked about how the future of AI is diverse by region, but that our AI future could be glorious for everyone if the risks are mitigated and human rights are universally respected. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Joy's social media profiles, as well as my own, at superdatascience.com 727. And beyond social media, if you live in Germany, we could meet in person soon at the time of recording this message. I'm still sorting out the details, but what I do know for sure is that I'll be at the iconic Morantix AI campus in Berlin, from November 13th to 17th, I'll likely be moderating a panel session on how to build a commercially successful AI startup and interview a number of exceptional AI entrepreneurs. I'll post more details on my LinkedIn and Twitter feeds as November 13th approaches, but as cool as it would be to meet in person at the Morantix AI campus, don't worry, I'll also be recording all the sessions as Super Data Science episodes. All right, thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Ivana, Mario, Natalie, Serge, Silvia, Zara, and Kirill on the Super Data Science team for producing another magnificent episode for us today. You can support this show by checking out our sponsors' links, by sharing, by reviewing, by subscribing, but most of all, by just keeping on tuning in. I'm so grateful to have you listening, and I hope I can make episodes you love for years and years to come. Until next time, my friend, keep on rocking it out there, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon.